Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and this is the Empire and Deep State series that I'm co-hosting with the American Exception podcast. As always, I'm joined with my friends and co-hosts, Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis. Aaron Good is the author of the book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, which is a, a theorization and a history of the US empire and the US deep state. This series is exploring that book and this is part eight. We continue moving forward. This episode is going to be dedicated to discussing the work of a little known theorist academic in um, the history of US academia named C. Wright Mills. And he taught at Columbia University, which of course is a ma very major Ivy League university. But his work is actually not very well known today. And I think there's a reason for that. It's because he was very subversive. He was very radical. And in 1956, he published a book called The Power Elite, which detailed the structure of power in the United States, where power actually lies. It was a very subversive book that influenced a lot of the, the so-called new left, a lot of socialist movements in the United States and around the world. And today we're going to talk about C. Wright Mill's theorization of the U.S. state, where power lies. And Aaron, let, let's start with discussing the power elite. Explain who C. Wright Mills was and this revolutionary book, book he published, The Power Elite, in 1956. Yeah, Mills is a guy who is not as well known today, but if you're in social science, you've, you've heard of him. And if you're familiar at all with the history of social science in the post-war era, then you know about Mills. He was in his time the most famous sociologist of his day. And uh, he wrote a book, on, he wrote The Sociological Imagination. He might be more famous for that than The Power Elite, but The Power Elite's right up there. Um, he also, he was inspired to write The Power Elite by a book by Franz Newman called Behemoth, which was about the rise of the Nazi state and how you could have this kind of tyrannical uh, political regime emerge in an advanced uh, society, an advanced industrialized society. And so he was alarmed by this and he wanted to uh, look at the American system and its sort of despotic qualities. And so he wrote The Power Elite. And it's, you know, in politics, political science, social science, we like definitions. So power is just that ability to uh, make others serve your will would be one way to describe power. And elite, of course, people who are higher up on a social hierarchy. So the power elite, you're sort of uh, people higher up in the social hierarchy who can bend others to their will. That's the power elite. And every society has an elite of power, but the American power elite was what Mills was focused on. And he was writing about ob observations that he had made about changes to American society and American politics. And he came to the conclusion that democracy was largely a facade in the United States and that decision-making had migrated to higher and higher circles because of the way the power structure in the United States had evolved over decades and decades, you know, even a couple centuries, really. He saw that there were, uh, he called the big three institutions, uh, corporate America, the military, and the political director, the government, right? And that the people at the top were increasingly interchangeable. They could go from being high up in the military to high up in the corporate America to working in the political system. That this kind of uh, convergence of, of interests and organizations and personnel was creating a, a situation unique in American history. And that it really allowed for top-down governance. I don't think he used exactly that phrase, but that's really what he's describing. 
in a way that was disguised. And so uh, it, it was a real indictment of political science at the time, which was moving in more like sort of behavioralist directions and quantitative directions with methods that really tried to make political science like a hard science, you know, where you're like running all these regressions and uh, talking about, you know, statistical correlations between this and that and like, Eureka, I've made a discovery, or, or, like that sort of uh, social science. And also social science, which uh, focused too much on assuming uh, pluralism and, and democracy prevailing as a kind of assumption, which uh, what didn't really hold true. You, you had a lot of top-down governance and it really was not a democratic way to operate. And so they needed to abandon these methods and they needed to look more at power. And that's what he wanted to, to do. He wanted to highlight the way in which top-down power had, had, become, had come to uh, totally dominate the big decisions that were made in the U.S. Right. So just while we're still sort of introducing Mills here, I want to read something from the prologue of the anthology reader, The Politics of Truth, because I think it outlines sort of his intellectual project well and gives you an idea of how to situate what the power elite was doing. Um, because uh, as the prologue says, his goal was to abolish itself in the self-cultivating man to create new values from the unity of ideas and action. And at the center of his 11 books, he published a trilogy, The New Men of Power, White Collar, and The Power Elite. Cued by Balzac's uh, ambition to build up a total picture of society, the trilogy had a little to say about a great many subjects and a lot to say about a few subjects of great importance. The modern epoch had begun when its ideologies organized the moral energy of the Enlightenment against myth, fraud, and superstition. Liberalism and Marxism had developed theories of human beings as secular, rational, peaceable creatures, then had transformed these theories into collective projects. But the institutions built around militarized capitalism and its power state overwhelmed self and society, according to Mills. In the coming, quote, postmodern epoch, unquote, the moral culture of humanist aspiration stood disinherited of the expectation that intelligence and freedom entailed one another. I think that that's at the heart of his more humanist. Um, I believe he's kind of an anarcho-syndicalist, um, but it's, it's hard to put an exact label on him, too. Um, but that's sort of how to situate what he's doing in the power elite. Um, and what, what you point out in the book is that at, um, I believe it's Michael Glennon, who we talked about last time, has this theory of double government, but he leaves out big business. And it leaves you with this sort of just ambient feeling that there's institutional inertia. And as you point out, uh, Mills's corporate rich or the overworld, as Peter Dell Scott puts it, explains the inertia uh, in a in a less vague way and gives us an idea of the structure behind it. And so as he points out, there's these men of decision at the top and that essentially you can understand the power elite, not through some cohesive ruling class, because you need something beyond that uh, to understand how it's this specific sort of guardian class at the very top. Uh, and so he talks about those who occupy the command posts. And so how to differentiate them out is to say there are gr gradations of power. So you have local power and then out of that arises this federalized system uh, that has international sway. But as he points out, and I think this is a, an important point for a lot of people who tend to say, oh, everybody's playing a role in politics and history at all times with every choice you make. And he says to pretend that we are all history makers is politically irresponsible because it obfuscates any attempt 
to locate responsibility for the consequential decisions of men who do have access to the means of power. So, Aaron, if you want to talk a little more, uh, in the lead up to him writing The Power Elite and then in the aftermath, what are some of the uh, the key turning points for these men of decision and how does their point in at the levers of power manifest? Well, Mills was writing about the fact, as you allude to, that it's a it's very erroneous and mischievous to say that like everybody is playing a part in history and that you shouldn't focus on elites because somehow this is they don't matter or that's taking away the agency of other people. Uh, I mean, people know that big decisions are getting made, as Mills says, and that he they know people know that they aren't making any big decisions. He focuses on some decisions in the power elite to make his point about the big decisions that have been made by the power elite. But he doesn't spend a whole lot of time going over them because his point is that the deliberations for these decisions are largely opaque. And so we don't really know. And this is this to me seems to be why he brings them up, but doesn't really even explore them that much. But I think the time has borne out that he was correct about them. Um, the entry in World War II was a big one. And that one, uh, it's not until like the 1970s, uh, maybe the late 70s, that we hear more about this or learn more about this. The book Imperial Brain Trust, written by uh, Lawrence Shoup and a guy named Mentor, uh, that was really about how the Council on Foreign Relations um, planned U.S. entry into World War II. With, you know, a Wall Street-funded organization was given State Department sanction to carry this out, paid for by Standard Oil, you know, Rockefeller money. And that these guys planned the U.S. post-war empire and U.S. entry into World War II. Very much a top-down affair. And this analysis and this history written by Shoup and Minter, uh, and much of the report has been declassified. So it's like you can go and read the War and Peace Studies Project now. This was exactly what he was talking about. And so he was dead on ab about this decision of enormous uh, importance for the U.S. entry into the World War II, but also for the U.S. to become a global empire. And it was decided in a top-down fashion, and not even in a top-down fashion by like the elected people like Roosevelt. It was decided by um, a Wall Street hired hands. And so this, this shows you right now. And also these same kind of people were the ones who decided to create the, the permanent war economy and enter into the Korean War uh, in such a way as to establish the military industrial complex as a bulwark, as a, as a foundational pillar of the post-war American-led global capitalist order. So if anything, Mills, in the areas where Mills did not have the historical data to back up his theoretical, uh, you know, exegesis or whatever, um, he, he, he's been borne out by the, by facts that have emerged since then. So this is uh, th these are extremely important issues, and they don't lend themselves to like uh, normal understandings of the way democracy is supposed to work, or the pretenses or assumptions of political science that they're going to have all the data that they need to understand uh, the decision making processes of the time. I mean, this is just a, a work that pretty much debunks most liberal understandings of the way that society has to work and also the prevailing myths of America and how American democracy works or that America is a democracy in the first place. It's useful to, to eviscerate sort of liberal conceptions of the, of American politics uh, today. And it was written in 1956. So that I think makes it a really outstanding book that was so far ahead of its time. It kind of has no peer in that, in that 
particular area. It's just, it's astounding to go back and read it today. Yeah. And Aaron, you kind of explained what Mills meant when he described the power elite, the political, economic, and military circles that influence national decisions. So how does Mills explain for history? Um, you know, the, the Marxist understanding of history is this, this constant clash between the working class and the ruling class, and these contradictions lead to a kind of momentum that pushes uh, history forward, and history is this clash of conflicts between the wealthy ruling class and the working class. Mills is not necessarily a Marxist. He's influenced by Marxism, but he is also a materialist, and materialism is something that he shares with Marxism, a materialist understanding of history that sees history as maybe not necessarily the same kind of dialectical way that a Marxist would see it, but it does see it rooted in conflict over economics and resources and labor. So what is Mill's theory of history? Yeah, Mill's one understood that you needed to put your analysis of society and politics into historical context. Uh, and so he had to grapple with different views of history and situate himself you know, somewhere along those lines. He spoke of two ideal types of history, people who viewed history as drift or fate or the unseen hand, right? Like the way to imagine this is if Oedipus was hist was history, right? That it's all sort of preordained and were the, the people that seem to be the protagonists are really guided along by forces that they don't really influence and there's just too much fate and that's over fate and the circumstances are overdetermining and so people are really just sort of caught up in this and they can't do much about it. Things will just unfold the way they were meant to unfold. Uh, and so the it's kind of for liberals, this is uh, their version of this is kind of the unseen hand of like liberal uh, capitalist development and so on that like all of these people are working in different ways endeavoring and carrying out, you know, their little, their business and participating in politics, whatever. And it's all going to add up to something, but because there's so many people involved, so many hands that are in, that are somehow influencing history that you can't really say that anybody is responsible for, for anything. And, and history is just going to unfold the way that it unfolds. Um, and so this is kind of a way of, um, it, it's a, it's a, Mills puts it as a way of soothing your own conscience if you are uh, on the of a semi leftish persuasion and, they, and you realize that politics is kind of not easily influenced in, in progressive ways by and large for whatever reason, then you can kind of attribute it to you know, the fact that it's just sort of this agentless force going forward and, and historical events unfold that way. Now, the other version of it, the other ideal type, which Mills also rejects, is all of history as conspiracy where you're just saying that, oh, yeah, everything is the result of a particular identifiable set of villains or heroes, and they're secretly plotting things behind the scenes, and this is how everything in the world plays out. So there are famous versions of this, like, uh, you know, the Jewish version of it, or the, the one that puts the Jews at the center of everything, right? We're familiar with that. And then there's the updated version of that, which which is the like globalists, you know what I mean? Where it's like the people who are more or less saying the same things that like anti-Semites used to say, except they just say globalists. And now a criticism of, you can say transnational capital and you could even call those people globalists. And then you're talking about something that's more, you know, grounded in actual reality. But these right-wingers are who are talking about globalists are not 
critics of capitalism. So when they start talking about globalists, you have to wonder, you know, what do they really mean? And it's really just a way of uh, rehabilitating a, you know, a, a Zionist centered cons global conspiracy uh, and repackaging it in such a way so that you have this other set of villains, but you're not really looking at capitalism at large. You're not seeing it as part of a capitalist system. But and anyway, that was, that was what Marx was writing about in on the Jewish question. Uh, people tend to get all up in arms thinking that he was writing something anti-Semitic, but he's really talking about that conspiracy form of history being uh, attributed to some kind of unitary class where you see it as just all controlled by shadowy people at the top and whether or not you call it the ruling class, the bourgeoisie or the, the, you know, just Jewish people in general, it's always going to end up landing you at some sort of bastardized form of, of history where you miss the way that it comes out of the, the struggle and out of the dialectic, like Ben was saying, and not out of just some one class deciding all of the factors all at once. Well, and then, of course, Marx himself was very clear to 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 uh, caution against a hyper structuralist understanding of history where, you know, you talked about this Oedipin kind of idea that history can't be changed and we're all just gears in the machine. I mean, his famous quote that history weighs on the living like a nightmare, weighs on the brain of the living like a nightmare. But he says that although we obviously can't change the history that we've inherited, we can try to use that history and the material conditions that were inherited to try to create a new a new world. I mean, Marx was involved in the International Working Men's Association, which became the International and was clearly he clearly believed that people could change history. So, I mean, he, like Mills, was struggling with that same kind of that contradiction, dialectical contradiction between the idea that history is completely structural structural and individuals have no influence and then the conspiracy strictly conspiracy understanding that individuals are the ones pulling the strings right and the elite theory is a way to reconcile those two things okay so in a in a in the biggest sense these are it's like structure versus agency but like it's sort of distilled into two ideal typical uh hist historical you know ways of looking at things um but the the problem the thing is that you do need to figure out who has agency and structure bequeaths agency to certain people and certain actors and certain segments of society. And so that's what he was really describing. He was describing the enormous agency brought about by the particular structure of American society uh, and the way that politics and the economy and the military machine were interacting and that the people at the top of these hierarchies themselves had a lot of agency bequeathed to them by the structure of the, of the whole system. And so he, he really laid this out. And he uh, did this, I think, brilliantly for the American system. And he had to go back in time to explain different historical eras uh, to this end. And I, without going into great detail on all of them, he saw the U.S. at the post-war era as being the fifth of different eras in the U.S. power structure. The first one is this kind of this era of elite cohesion uh, after, after the war for independence and through John Adams. That's one the one period where the military and the uh, political leadership and the cultural elites were all kind of on the same page, and power was so decentralized because of the nature of technology and such that you know the, the elites were not able to dominate that way, even as they were kind of spread across the major institutions of the United States. They were still so weak that it didn't really matter. 
the what you could call the antebellum period goes from Jefferson to the Civil War. And this is a time where there is that yeoman farmer, which is kind of mythologized, but also something that did exist to some to some extent and did produce a kind of freedom and independence from political domination and despotism like people had experienced in Europe, uh, thanks to the amount of arable land in the United States relative to the population. And uh, once you have the American Indian population gone or, or otherwise under control, then there were a lot of opportunities there and a kind of freedom that was available in the U.S. during this period, uh, which he called the period of romantic pluralism. Uh, because there, there was some actual pluralism in the United States because of the structure of the economy and the technology at that point. Then you get the Gilded Age, which goes up to through the Great Depre up to the Great Depression. Uh, and the Gilded Age, Gilded Age is the rise of corporate power, really cemented in 1886 with the Supreme Court decision that grants corporate personhood uh, using the 14th Amendment as a pretext. And this era persisted until the Great Depression, where all of that corporate you know, dominance resulted in this horror, this economic catastrophe. And the New Deal era kind of changes politics, but ultimately it brings in, it, it kind of gives rise to the power elite because it brings economic people into the management in certain ways with the federal government. And uh, the federal government cannot bring these forces into to bear without having them uh, eventually kind of take over the show and, and, the U.S. becomes an empire at this point with World War II going on at the same time. And so this, uh, this era was, is, is key because in the New Deal, you didn't have a change. You, you had FDR saving the main pillars of capitalism. And so this ends up giving rise to the U.S. and the federal government being powerful enough to organize itself for and mobilize for World War II and then to take that sort of power and organizational strength and parlay that into a, a global empire uh, that we're still living through probably the tail end of. But that 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 era of entering the U.S. entering into World War II and then establishing that empire up to Mills's 19, you know, 56, which really it's you're really talking about a 15 year time period or so if the U.S. enters the war in 1941 um, that, that Mills was describing as the fifth epic of American history. And the sixth one, I would argue, is the Bre the end of Bretton Woods and the rise of the neoliberal imperial era. And uh, that's where the U.S. takes an even more avaricious and right-wing turn in the way it's going to run global capitalism. And we're seeing it kind of crumble uh, in real time these days uh, as we're living through all of these interesting times. Right. And, and some of Mills's best contributions here are around talking about the rise of military power and of the military men. I believe the chapter is called the military ascendancy. Um, and he points out the ways that historically um, you would think that the centers of power and the, specifically the centers of armed, like the monopoly on violence is held by generals. And so how are they able to be subsumed into these liberal democratic orders? And he points out the way that honor and prestige is able to play a role in sort of, for lack of a better word, like domesticating the, the military ascendancy. But as we enter this new uh, fifth epoch in, in his view, um, that starts to shift. And with like Ellsberg and the general war plan and essentially mutually assured, assured destruction, if any kind of war were to break out, um, there's this rising autonomy among the military that JFK runs up into. And there's a lot of talk around this period that essentially no president could actually stand up to the generals in terms of if the, you know, their will is, is, 
is the way at this point. So in terms of the backing to them, we see the rise of the war economy uh, shift the dynamics in this new fifth epoch away from the New Deal. So what's the significance of the war economy to the power elite? This was the source of uh, the rise of the power elite and a big part of the American empire. And this is another area where Mills was more correct than he knew. And as things emerged later, uh, there's more confirmation that he was absolutely correct. Um, beginning in 1939, when it's clear that the war is going to break out and the, the War and Peace Studies project is undertaken by the Council on Foreign Relations with Roosevelt, uh, his State Department more or less in, uh, delegating that authority to them, the, the attention turns from economic issues of the Great Depression and saving the economy from all the problems of the Great Depression to international issues and military issues. And the there's no political force that is a countervailing force that can that can stop this. And so the the economy's foundation was permanent war and the prevailing mode of organization in the American economy was the private corporation. And so you end up with this phrase that Mills uses throughout um, the power elite and also in the causes of World War Three. I just abbreviate it in my own communications as Pipway or PIPWE, which is privately incorporated permanent war economy. And both parts of that are, are relevant. The permanent war economy means you're going to have a huge military machine that's always running and working to deal with, in some ways, dealing with economic problems, but it's also supposedly ostensibly to protect America and American security. But the privately incorporated part is very important because who were the major, what are the major economic units that are responsible for maintaining this machine and it's private for-profit corporations and so the congress is giving enormous amounts of sums to entities that are owned by stockholders and are there to make a buck and this gives them a huge amount of of money and power and they uh this creates the military industrial complex and this arises in part because, and Mills didn't know this, but again, this is where he was very brilliant because he said that like, yeah, it just seems like the solution to everything is the, is the military. It's like the one thing that they can all agree on and it solves all these problems. And he elaborates on this. And we didn't know this at the time. It's really only in like 2010 or 11. I mean, people had written things to this effect and, and it seems this way uh, for, for some people who were paying attention, but there's this book, uh, NSC 68 and the political economy of the early Cold War. It points out like there was a big problem at the end of the 40s. The Marshall Plan was going to expire eventually. And the empire that the U.S. wanted with, you know, Japan in the Pacific, Japan, Taiwan and South Korea in the Pacific as satellites of the U.S. and then Western Europe as doing business with the U.S. This was in danger because they really didn't have any way to trade with the U.S. They couldn't earn enough dollars. And if they were just left to their own devices, they would start trading more with the uh, Soviet Union and with China. And this would have been a disaster. And so they make the decision to uh, massively beef up American military spending and probably entry into Korea is was done, you know, taken into account here. And it's probably accounts for why the Korean War was fought the way that it was. Even Churchill acknowledged the main consequence of the Korean War is the rearming of the United States. But they had already laid out that argument for rearming the United States uh, in NSC 68, written by uh, Dean Acheson subordinate, Paul Nitza, you know, one of the early founders of the NEO, or the, one of the early neocons. And that this was, so the military became not just the basis for the U.S. economy, 
but the basis for a global empire. It became this unassailable thing. And not just because the military guys were like such, you know, uh, ramrod characters who just demand were, were so belligerent. It's that the, the people who would never go anywhere near violence or anything, you know, unseemly like that, like Dean Acheson, these Wall Street guys or the guys that are the guys that hire the Wall Street white lawyers, right? Like people like Acheson and the Rockefellers and so on. They needed this to produce the economic arrangements that they wanted. And it gives rise to the military industrial complex. And Mills's critique was prop- popular enough that it really gets folded into uh, Eisenhower's farewell speech. When Eisenhower's talking about the military industrial complex, that speech was written by a political scientist whose name I don't remember, and it's not especially important, but it was a political scientist who had to be aware of Mill's work and influenced by it. And so he was talking about this at the end of 1960. So it's a 10-year period where, you know, between tr- the last years of Truman, entry into the Korean War, and the Eisenhower administration, they preside over this thing. And Eisenhower is like, I can't get rid of it. And the part of the reason that Eisenhower is like kind of at wit's end is that, and which he may or may not appreciate, is that this uh, this sort of uh, organizational system or this whole scheme of like building an economy around walling off the, the free world from trade with the communist world, that this was essential for the schemes of the American super elites who wanted a global empire and wanted to run global capitalism and replace colonialism with neocolonialism, this privately uh, incorporated permanent war economy was central to their plans. And so it had the backing of not just the generals and these other you know people who perpetrate violence, organize violence, but it was really integrated with the very tippy top of the economic elite, the, the capitalists in America, the, the richest, most powerful people uh, in world history up to that point. This kind of touches on what we discussed in the last part, which is about the failure of the structure of the U.S. government to actually be democratically accountable. We talked about the failures of the legislative, judicial and executive branches. And, you know, the U.S. government portrays itself certainly as democratic. It portrays itself as having these checks and balances to prevent a kind of power elite, the small oligarchic elite to control the political system. So why is it that liberal democracy, I mean, you know, I clearly have my own answer to this, but at least from Mill's perspective, why has liberal democracy, why have these liberal democratic institutions failed to actually be democratically accountable and prevent the rise of this kind of oligarchy that Mill's described in the power elite? Well, a a generic answer is that the forces that rose to power were more powerful than the forces that might have stood against them. Uh, That's it in the most commonsensical way. But he he explains the different uh, aspects of this or a number of different aspects that seem very relevant to today. He was writing about the that the 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 discourse in the United States or the, the politics in America the, the the main actors, the public, had sort of transformed into a mass society. And so he gets into definitions of the public that are not what you hear today so much. We just think of the public as like, yeah, all the people. But what he meant by public was he, he would use the plural form and say publics. And he meant just different groups of, uh, you know, re- that are related and, and interact in different ways, but groups of people who are informed about different issues and can engage in politics. 
So he, he said that a democratic society requires uh, an engaged and lucid public whose members uh, deliberate with each other and discuss issues and have some sense of democratic agency that isn't delusional, like they actually are discussing things and they have power to influence things if they decide on this or that. But he saw the lower levels of society moving further away from this public ideal uh, toward a mass society. And he said mass communication, metropolitan segregation, uh, and the decline of voluntary associations were all leading to a degeneration of the American set of publics. And as a result, society was turning into a mass that, quote, is sovereign only in the most formal and rhetorical sense. So the lower levels are, are kind of becoming an inert mass public and the middle levels of power, like unions or state politicians or small property owners or the people that run, you know, state or local politics, these were more or less in stalemate with each other. And so they really didn't have power to do much. They might achieve this or that little victory or suffer this little defeat at a different time. But really, the bigger decisions were made up in society. And so while these people were in stalemate, the actual power elite were super class conscious. Like they are, this is where the Marxism and the Marxist ideas of like, oh yeah, we need class consciousness. Well, the there is class consciousness, especially in the power elite, because these are people who like their job is to be elites. They don't have the regular jobs of regular people. Like their job is to be an elite and to organize uh, so that they can enhance and maintain their power. Like that's what they actually do. And so the best way to do that is to work with other elites. And so they're very class conscious and uh, they're going to organize and they're going to put their resources into organizing to advance their interests while the rest of the people are just, you know, out there uh, trying to just trying to survive and get by or they're involved in whatever they're involved in. But the elites are are, are more powerful. And so these uh, the, the other parts of society, the 99 percent, you could call it that, um, even though it's probably more than 99 percent. They're sort of powerless against the organized power represented by the power elite because of the organizations that the power elite command, the economic, military, and political organizations. Yeah, and something that Mills also focused a lot on, and again, this was in the 1950s, 1956 when he published The Power Elite, was the power of the media. And I would argue that the media has gotten even more powerful, significantly more powerful since the 1950s. So what is the role of the media in addition to the failure of these bourgeois democratic institutions in helping to foster the rise of the power elite, which right. is an oligarchy. Yes. Well, they're kind of that you could, you could think of it in different ways. You could think of them as it might be more accurate to call them the, the uh, servants of the oligarchy and the oligarchy together, maybe. So it's, but some version of that, absolutely. They represent oligarchy. That's that, if you're going to put it in the one word, that's it. Oligarchy. And the media as in Mill's time, I mean, it, it's funny to read these things about communications because with television and other things that were becoming even more, you know, uh, ubiquitous in this time period, there was this optimism that like, this is going to really change things. And it potentially could if TV didn't suck, but it's always kind of sucked. And uh, the internet re just reproduces that. People thought this was really going to change things, but we see that the tendency is for concentration of power and ownership and a sort of um, a, a uniformity of message, but with a illusion of, of pluralism and choice. And so he found that these things were not delivering. He said, uniformity of opinion was taking shape. 
but it was masked by uh, superficial differences. And these mainly exacerbate confirmation bias, which for all of us, we have to be totally aware of that. You can see these, if you ever have wandered into a conversation on the internet where you're like, think that you're de you're dealing with one group of people who have some perspective, but then you find out you're not. This happens to me because if we deal with state criminality, then you have people who like actually might be interested in this. But then like at some point you might realize that you're talking to like libertarians or right-wingers. And then it's like, oh God, I, this is I, this is like a, a loop of where there's this like cosmology and it's just like, this is just, just how it is. And the mainstream ones are even worse. The, the, the pussy hat people versus the MAGA people uh, you know, it's, it could almost be like a West Side Story thing, right? They're just going to like duke it out one day or something. You're just like, <laughs> if you're uh, on the left, you're just like, oh my God, I'm in this. This is a clown show. Uh, and it doesn't help that there's two clown armies going against each other. It's just as bad. So th these were, the, the media wasn't delivering and uh, it's only gotten worse with like corporate control and the end of the fairness doctrine. And uh, I think that we've, it's been established that the, uh, the media is not, and the, the social media monopolies and so on, and the, the big networks, the newspapers, none of these uh, are going to be the engine of change. If anything, they are uh, tools of the, of the prevailing order of the status quo. And then, of course, another institution that C. Wright Mills, as an academic, focused on was the education system. Now, unlike the media, which I think has gotten significantly worse since then, Maybe you could say that the education system isn't as completely propagandistic as in the 1950s, but of course, as we've talked about throughout the series, there still is an insane amount of propaganda in academia. Talk about the role, at least according to Mill's uh, theorization, of academia and the education system in propagating the power of the, of the power elite. Yeah, he, he saw education as having failed in its purposes. The idea of a liberal education, which I think right-wingers would think like liberal education, you're going to teach my son, you know, teach him up to be liberals, you know, and <laughs> maybe groom him or something, right? Like, but that's not what well, they mean by liberal education. Well, yeah, they mean, Aaron, this is like this recent scandal where the, it was someone in the Biden administration talked about the importance of the liberal world order. And then of course, all these conservatives were like, well, they're trying to to make the world liberal. And it's like, no, that phrase has been constantly used for decades, including by Republicans. Mike Pompeo had given speech talking about the liberal world order. It shows once again that people in the United States, most people have no idea what the word liberal means. And pretty much everyone's a liberal unless they're like a revolutionary. Most conservatives are liberals and most so-called progressives are still liberals. Yeah, it's the most a confusing word, really. I mean, you can really pretty much say everybody is a liberal, even leftists have <laughs> liberal inclinations because of like, if you believe in like free speech and so on, these are kind of like hallmarks of liberalism. Of course, the problem is like liberalism typically is intertwined with like capitalism and then it gets into more problematic areas. But like even people having political debates in public are kind of pantomiming liberalism, even us by doing this, thinking that it somehow matters that we are talking about politics there's liberal <laughs> ideas underpinning that. So people, it, it's a word that has been used to mean opposite things, classical liberalism versus FDR style, American liberalism versus neoliberalism. Uh, it's all very, and liberal education comes to mean something else. Liberal world, world order means something kind of different. So to be fair, it's pretty confusing. But the, of course, Pavlovian right-wing response of like liberals and that liberal equals left-wing is, is, is ridiculous. But um, 
in general, the ed getting back to education, Mills saw education as being uh, not cultivating the, what the liberal goal of, of liberal education was, which is to create the self-cultivating mind, you know, the individual who is educated and learned enough that they not only can learn, you know, the, the basic things that you should expect people to know in a democratic society, but they're going to be smart enough and good enough critical thinkers uh, and motivated enough to go and keep themselves politically informed and participate in a political life in, in you know, in a, in a democracy in some way that it was failing at that and that it was really becoming more about like vocational tricks and adjustment to life. So meaning that it was more of like a, a way to socialize people for participation in an increasingly, uh, you know, this, 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 I don't want to say despotic, but an increasingly depoliticized and uh, economy and economic life and society uh, in a mass society. You could say it was designed just to get you to cope with life under power elite auspices. Uh, so he saw education as failing uh, its its mission and that it wasn't going to save us. And I, I think I would agree with that. It's terrible for all the other aspects as a historian and social scientist, the history that students get is, is kind of me is mediocre at best. And there's really, it's very difficult to be an anti-war uh, anti-economic injustice uh, scholar or teacher in the United States, even your most supposedly left-wing uh, high schools and such, you'd, have, you'd really want to keep a low profile because the private schools might offer some opportunities, but ultimately they have to serve wealthy people. And wealthy people don't really like anti-imperialists and anti-capitalists because there's always going to be some of them that, that gets into their meal ticket, you know? They don't want their kids thinking that way. And then the public school system is uh, shaped largely by the corrupt political system. And so you can see why it would largely be less than ideal uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, Mills's best work is really around that cultural critique. And it, and it doesn't just impact, uh, you know, academia or, or intellectual people. It also impacts just everyone participating in our culture. I mean, there's a really great passage. Uh, it, you know, his writing really has a, a lot of staying power. I'll, I'll talk about uh, part of that in a second because there's a great story. But at one point in that same prologue uh, that I was talking about earlier, um, they write, the predicament was structural. The corporate organization of culture tied off the veins of creativity, forcing the craftsmen to cater to the formulas and stereotypes of the, quote, overdeveloped super society the United States was becoming. Confined to the roles of hack or star, the craftsmen lost contact with the public, which split into, quote, media markets that trivialized the interests of its individuals into hobbies and the hive of educative interplay, once a place to practice democratic values rotted in the commercial transaction. I think that's a really uh, a great passage there, just sort of showing the way that that it starts to hollow out the our meaning creation itself. And so when he's talking about these master tasks of intellectuals, a lot of the time, he's more speaking on the same terms that like you were saying, the the sort of liberal idea that the this edu educative interplay or enlightenment ideals, a lot of things that actually Peter Dale Scott makes a, a really good case for of that being really key to public life and and creating meaning for ourselves in our lives. Um, it's hard to forsake that. And that is what the sort of uh, subsuming all of civic life and all of of, uh, of governmental society and institutions into 
capital social relations or capital centered social relations, how that starts to hollow it out into just this sort of pure, he says, like, you can't just buy art and therefore in, in some way uh, uh, Im imbue it with more meaning to yourself. Um, but there's a great story about, and this is just speaks to how important his work was about how uh, Raul Roa Jr., Cuba's representative to the UN in 1960, he says how the young men who had made the revolution in Cuba had studied the power elite at their camps in the Sierra Maestra, uh, and quote, if the American consul should visit me here, Fidel Castro had quipped to a reporter after, after the book reached him in 1958, I hide this book under the bed, no? And Roa wanted Mills to visit Cuba to see for himself what his book had helped achieve. And so he ended up doing that. He wrote a great letter. I would, I would recommend people check that out. But another great story, just very quickly, he says to his students at Columbia, I don't know what you guys are waiting for. you got a beautiful set of mountains up there in those Rockies. I'll show you how to use the pistols. Why don't you get going? And that's sort of to, to my very first point about him trying to kind of uh, um, collide the intellectual tasks with action. Um, that's how you avoid being a reactionary is to, to collide those two things. And so that kind of brings us back to the next thing. Uh, one of his best pieces of analysis is on what he, what's called the, uh, the conservative mood. So Aaron, if you want to talk a little bit about what the conservative mood is and, and how the reactionary trend in, in, uh, in American intellectualism has sort of taken hold. Right. Well, he the, the, he saw the intellectuals as kind of the last line of defense because, the political system was a, a vacuum that the power elite had filled because the media was a part of the problem more than a part of the solution and because the educational system wasn't going to do much to uh, course correct either. And so the intellectual was the last line of defense, but unfortunately, scholars were in default. They had succumbed to a conservative mood, and this was a result of quote, living in a material boom, a nationalist celebration, a political vacuum. So Mills, as you say, he charged that the intellectuals had given up on the overriding goal of Western humanism, which you could also think of as like high liberalism. So as, as much as I'm always like dissing liberals for good reason, it's like the ideals of high liberalism, the ideals of humanism, the ideals of the enlightenment are things that we pretty much you know, mostly accept. And even if you're a Marxist, you're kind of operating on these, on this basis, um, which is the presumptuous control of reason by man's fate. Okay. This is, the, the, this is really the goal of the enlightenment and, and of humanism. And uh, given America's history in which the bourgeois have been dominant from the beginning, neither the conservative Edmund Burke nor the classical Locke could be the ideal, ideological fountainheads uh, for the United States. So they could not be the source of any kind of unifying uh, set of myths or uh, sort of a cosmolo cultural cosmology for the United States. You know, like the, like you can argue Confucius and the things related to Confucianism are a part of like Chinese culture that's kind of like immutable over time and like a bedrock of, you know, certain ideas about people in society. And what Mills wrote, which I think is so punchy and accurate and sad uh, is that instead the much more pedestrian uh, Horatio Alger is really the source of American ideology, if you can even call it that. That's not a direct quote, that's me more or less paraphrasing him, but that's really it. Horatio Alger, like work hard and get ahead. That's like the American creed. And that's not a very uh, rich 
way of looking at, at, at human existence, right? But it's really, I, I, it'd be hard to come up with something more a accurate than, than that sort of summation if you're going to put it into one, into one thing. Liberalism at the time, the liberalism of the, the New Deal era was really collapsing. M McCarthyism had attacked the New Deal. And I think that's actually what McCarthyism was supposed to do. You could have called it Hooverism. Uh, because J. Edgar Hoover was behind it, and other right-wing forces in America were using uh, the security services and uh, right-wing politicians and allies in the media to basically go after people in the New Deal and call them communists. The guy that Richard Nixon defeated to become a congressman was Jerry Voorhees, and he wanted to nationalize the Fed. He went after Standard Oil for this very shady offshore drilling crime that they were involved in. And uh, this was the guy that they wanted to defeat. So they just picked this guy up, Nixon. And Nixon starts, you know, doing the old version of robocalls, which I guess is like a real person call. But basically saying, did you know that Jerry Voorhees is a communist? What, what do you think about that? Right. All these things. And it's really just a way to sort of get rid of New Deal people. They wanted to get rid of Harry Dexter White, but he happened to die uh, before that. Some people think he was killed, but, you know, he was a, the Treasury guy under um, FDR. And, uh, you know, a, a liberal in that sense, like a, to the left of more like in the vein of Henry Wallace than Harry Truman or other more right wing figures. And uh, they he dies. And so they go after Alger Hiss famously and uh, probably frame him for things when he wasn't really a communist agent, if you'd ask me. But this is still controversial to this day. Supposedly, Nixon did admit to uh, to Dean that they had actually created the typewriter, reverse engineered it in order to frame Alger Hiss. Uh, but, you know, we, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. The point is that liberalism wasn't able to stand up to McCarthyism. And to the extent that the U.S. ever had progressive elements in its system of government, uh, the New Deal was, was the peak of it. And they systematically crushed all of those forces uh, in the 50s. But the country was so prosperous economically that it, it really wasn't the damage that had been done to American democracy and American society wasn't quite obvious to that many people because of the affluence of the society. But we see uh, ahead of time that Mills is one of the few people writing who really did grasp what had been going on and how, how democratic power had been crushed in the United States, uh, basically, by these people in the power elite, uh, and that the petty, petty right-wingers like Nixon and McCarthy were really like the foot soldiers for this, for the power elite, who were more sophisticated and shrewd than these guys, who were, after all, kind of gauche and cloddish in some ways with their, you know, foaming at the mouth anti-communism, but they served a purpose, which was to get rid of these uh, progressive social democratic forces in American politics and make everybody pretty much conform to Cold War pro-capitalist orthodoxy. Um, and so the intellectual was not, the intellectual who wanted to go along to get along really was not able to withstand that. And so Mills was uh, not the kind of intellectual who was going to emerge, uh, you know, in the 19, in that era uh, and, and get all of the, the prestige and so on. He's kind of marginalized and then he dies under President Kennedy, um, dies very young, dies of a heart problem. And uh, which I think emerged, he, the first time he fell ill was at, at a debate with some Cubans over the Cuban revolution. And he just got really sick and then he was alive for a couple more years, as I, if I remember correctly, and uh, and died. So I've always kind of wondered if he was poisoned, but that's a whole other separate issue. The point is that Mills, uh, like these other people, these other New Deal figures, like they're they're gone and they're not part of the 
discussion so much until the new left kind of revives him in the mid 60s. I think it's important to point out that what Mills is really pointing to at the power elite is because as we're talking about, yes, they run these progressive elements out of society, but it's not some conspiratorial decision to like take over the world just because they want to run the show. The perceived thing for a lot of people is either this invented threat of the Cold War or for a lot of people, what they believe to be real. But uh, a lot of the time it's born out of this threatened sense of, of a fall from power if they don't hold on tight and sort of uh, a clamp down. Because like you were saying, there's this affluence. But the problem is, and, and this is sort of a key theme of the whole book, is while the New Deal era has this kind of supposedly social democratic system domestically, it is supported by the compromise that we can have this rising tide that rises so quickly that owners of capital are willing to compromise uh, with, with labor unions because it gives them stability. But that compromise is only built on hyper-exploitation abroad through imperialism that we've been talking about this whole time, that it's unstable in that way. And so the minute that there's starting to be a coagulation of third world interests into, into certain uh, uh, organizations, and you have the, the Soviet Union still you know, trying to rebuild from the war, they know that they have to have some response because otherwise you're going to have some threat to your to the stability of that New Deal system that was good enough. And and the, the again, the tide is rising so fast that they don't really notice. But at the same time, there's that level of influence or affluence that sort of shuts people off to that, to um, to some of the, the contradictions there or just to needing some form of ideology beyond beyond some self-interested bootstraps uh, sort of false and and to quote uh, Mills, mindless ideology. And so as he points out, those illusions mean that the and the lack of scholarly um, uh, resistance to it means that they're, quote, able to command without an ideology that they must defend. And so the power elite embody the American system of organized irresponsibility. And there's a really great, great, great quote from you there about um, Mills's judgment that it rings prophetic to those who look aghast at humanity's inability to respond to global warming, to stop the policy of endless regime change campaigns, or to dismantle the nuclear doomsday machine that threatens humanity with extinction. And so that's kind of another core theme of American exception is the way that we've found ourselves impotent in a moment like this. And it's because of this theme that Mills keeps coming back to, this mindless disorganization that comes out of something called the higher immorality. So if you want to talk a little bit about higher immorality and how that sort of hamstrings any ability for society to break out of the mold here and to formulate a better positive project. Well, Mills defined the higher immorality, which I think that I should just probably leave us, leave us on this quote and maybe come back next time with higher immorality and another one of Mills' great uh, little chestnuts, crackpot realism. But this quote, uh, I think, is a good way to sort of tease the next episode on the higher immorality. Mills, this is from my book, but it involves some Mills quotes too. Mills defined the higher immorality as, quote, the general weakening of older values and the organization of irresponsibility. This is not a case of corrupt men in honorable institutions, okay? If the institutions are themselves corrupting, the men who people them are corrupted as a matter of course. The higher immorality has become a systemic feature of the U.S. elite 
its widespread acceptance is a key aspect of mass society. And this issue is, I think, what a big part of what Mills was getting into. It's why he has a whole chapter, I believe, called The Higher Morality. And uh, it prevails. And it's a, the perfect uh, name for a term that describes something uh, that encapsulates so much of what the empire is. Because empire is based on you know, domination of weaker nations. And it's uh, the basis of a capitalist enterprise, which has at, it, at its core uh, exploitation as the, you know, the main aspect of economic relations and social relations in a capitalist system. And so this, that he has identified this higher immorality, very important to understanding uh, what animates this whole system. Yeah, Aaron, I think that's a, a really good point to stop this episode on. We didn't finish the chapter on C. Wright Mills, but that's because he's a very important figure to understand the history of theorization of power in the U.S. state, the structure of the U.S. government and the U.S. empire. So we are going to do this. We're going to continue this discussion of C. Wright Mills and some of his other ideas and the relevance to understanding the U.S. empire and deep state. And the next part, um, like like I said at the beginning of this, you're listening to the Empire and the Deep State series that is jointly produced by the American Exception podcast and by Multipolarista. You can support the show if you go to patreon.com slash American Exception or, and or both uh, patreon.com slash Multipolarista. I'm Ben Norton. We're joined, as always, by Aaron Good, who's the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State and also the series producer, Seamus McGinnis. So thanks, guys. I think that was a great episode. I'm, I'm glad we're not trying to rush it and, and just get all this stuff out. I think it's good to let this stuff percolate and really emphasize some of the important ideas, because even though Mills died in 1962, I think this stuff is still really, really relevant to understand the, the crisis that the U.S. is going through today in this moment where you know, the emperor has no clothes anymore, where everyone can see the, br the brazen authoritarianism of the U.S. government. Thank you very much, Ben. I think that says a lot there.